0: I'm just a guy from the Golden Heart, the wild and vast interior of Alaska. As a young boy, I was raised in a world that married the modern life of televisions and microwave ovens to the rugged and free world of wilderness, wild game, and wood smoke. I was a kid who loved life in the last frontier, but as I got older, I discovered something. I like the good stuff. You know, all those things that make life worth it, that makes all those long days and cold nights bearable all that stuff that puts a smile on your face and makes that satisfied sound pass through your lips. They're the things that start the most interesting conversations. And after a few years of enjoying these things all by myself, I decided it was high time to share this passion with folks far and wide. To talk and teach and taste wine, food, spirits, beer. To travel all over Alaska in the beautiful Pacific Northwest and visit places and experience things and then share them with you. I'm Michael Dukes, and this is Finer Things. When men drink, they are rich and successful and win lawsuits and are happy and help their friends. Quickly, bring me a beaker of wine, so that I may wet my mind and say something clever. Aristophanes, 424 B.C. Microdistilling. It's also known as craft distilling and it started to take the nation by storm. Small batch distilleries are popping up faster than you can imagine, and we have more individual distilleries today than at any time since Prohibition. For those of us who like the finer things, this is a great opportunity to taste and try and enjoy the work of artisans from around the country as they relearn and reinvent an art form that was nearly extinct a generation ago. Today on Finer Things, we're going to travel north to Fairbanks, Alaska and talk with Rob Borland, the owner of Ursa Major Distilling. We'll get a behind-the-scenes look of how he got started in this resurgence of the maker movement when it comes to spirits and talk about some of the uniqueness that he brings as an Alaskan to this burgeoning industry. But before we get a chance to head to the interior and visit with Rob, let's take just a few moments to talk about the history of spirits that most revered and oft reviled of beverages booze liquor hooch no matter what you call it distilled spirits have been around for a millennia if you were any kind of civilized society and you already discovered beer chances were you were on your way to making some of the harder stuff the two ingredients needed to make distilled spirits are widespread and readily available And almost every culture in every part of the world has developed some form of alcoholic beverage very early in their history. Heck, the Chinese were distilling a beverage made from rice beer as far back as 800 BC. For nearly 3,000 years, people have been making potent spirits for medicinal and recreational purposes. So let's just take a couple of minutes and get a surface level overview of this distillation process. First of all, regardless of the spirit, The basic distillation procedure is pretty much the same. Distillation doesn't actually create alcohol. It just condenses a weaker alcoholic beverage like wine or beer down to a more concentrated form. A weak alcoholic beverage is heated to boiling in a still, usually some form of pot or vessel that's sealed and capped with coiled tubing at its highest point. Since the various constituent parts of the resulting vapor, like water, ethyl, methyl, isopropyl alcohol, vaporize and condense at different temperatures, they can be selectively extracted to create a new mixture which can then be further aged or flavored by the distiller. The different kinds of stills like pot stills and column stills function in different ways and result in products of vastly different makeup and taste but the basic process is the same. Slowly boil the liquid and keep the vapors that you want. A distilled beverage – spirit, liquor, hard liquor, or hard alcohol – can be produced by a distillation of grains or fruits, even vegetables, after they themselves have already gone through alcoholic fermentation. This distillation process purifies and removes diluting components like water for the purpose of increasing its proportion of alcohol content, commonly referred to as ABV or alcohol by volume. As distilled beverages have a higher concentration of alcohol, they're considered harder. In North America, the term hard liquor is used to distinguish distilled beverages from undistilled ones. Undistilled beverages include things like beer and wine and cider, as they're fermented but not distilled. And they all have a relatively low alcohol content, typically less than 15%. Brandy is a spirit produced by the distillation of wine and has an ABV of over 35%. Other examples of distilled beverages include bourbon, vodka, gin, rum, tequila, mezcal, whiskey, scotch, oh, scotch, and, of course, moonshine. As mentioned before, the Chinese were distilling a beverage from rice beer by 800 B.C., and Iraq was distilled in the East Indies from sugar cane and rice. The Arabs developed a distillation process that was used to produce a distilled beverage from wine. The Romans apparently produced distilled beverages as well and although no references concerning them are found in writings before 100 AD, production of distilled spirits was reported in Britain before the Roman conquest. Spain, France and the rest of Western Europe probably produced distilled spirits at an earlier date but production was apparently limited until the 8th century after contact with the Arab alchemists. The first distilled spirits were made from sugar-based materials, primarily grapes and honey to make grape brandy and distilled mead. The earliest use of starchy grains to produce distilled spirits isn't known precisely, but their use certainly dates from sometime around the Middle Ages. And like anywhere where money is involved, the government always wants their taste as well, with historical reports of government control dating back to the mid to late 1600s. As production methods improved and the volume increased, the distilled spirits industry became an important source of revenue for the government coffers, with rigid controls often being imposed on both the production and the sale of liquor. So, that's the history lesson. Time to head north and get on with the good stuff. Rob Borland is the founder of Ursa Major Distilling just outside of Fairbanks in Esther, Alaska. Rob's decision to start to distill came from a passion for home brewing that slowly expanded the idea that he'd like to try his hand at spirits. Having worked for several years at the North Pole Refinery, refining crude oil, Rob figured he had the basics of cracking his brew down. But all of a sudden, Rob realized that he may have gotten on the wrong side of Uncle Sam simply because he didn't understand the law.
1: Boy, though, that's always a hard question. I always get that from everybody. It was pretty much just more of an interest than anything like I brewed beer all through college uh, not professionally of course as a home brewer right you know, this was kind of the next logical step kind of thing you know I kind of played around on my stovetop growing up and you know made a little still a little lab style thing right made some awful awful stuff for <laughs> went blind for <laughs> yeah. a period of time right yeah. you know and I kind of You know, never really dialed it in, never kind of like abandoned the whole process. You know, then I started working at the refinery and it was um, pretty similar kind of like I learned a lot more about distillation, I guess, there and kind of researched it a little more and figured like, wow, I could probably do something a little better and kind of caught the bug. Like I always like designing the equipment and building it and that sort of thing. Right. so I ended up doing that I, I made a still and tried it out and I'm like wow this makes really good stuff and then I looked at the law and I was like oh wow this is very I, illegal like He can't... didn't make a still. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so I was like man I got to do this legal if I want to do it. Right. Um, and there's a lot of hoops to jump through. I had to build a separate building to make all that work and I figured well it's kind of a hobby. It's basically a hobby gone awry is, is what. Right. Happens, so
0: One of the common themes that I've discovered when touring small breweries and distilleries is their dedication to their community. Most of them are committed to buying local whenever possible, not only to help promote the idea of local grown or made, but to also enhance the circle of life idea where local businesses supporting each other makes for a stronger community as a whole. But sometimes trying to support the community, usually at a slightly higher cost, is not without its downside. When we return, We'll talk with Rob Borland of Ursa Major Distilling about the challenges that buying local brings to distilling. That's up next on Finer Things. The proper union of gin and vermouth is a great and sudden glory. It is one of the happiest marriages on earth and one of the shortest lived. Bernard DeVoto. Welcome back to Finer Things. I'm Michael Dukes, and today we're talking about craft distilling in The Last Frontier. One of the common themes that I've discovered when touring small breweries and distilleries is their dedication to their communities. Most of them are committed to buying local whenever possible, not only to help promote the idea of local grown or made, but to also enhance that circle of life idea where local businesses supporting each other make for a stronger community as a whole. That's why I was so excited to hear that Rob Borland from Ursa Major Distilling in Fairbanks was using Alaskan barley for his distilling. But, for all the positives of buying and supporting local barley growers, it's not without its downside,
1: yeah, yeah, we get most of it out of Delta Junction. Um, I've been getting a little bit out of it banana right now that I'm trying out, and it's looking really promising. Um, the problem with Alaska barley, we use all Alaska barley, but it does have its drawbacks. Um, that's why no breweries generally use it. Um, it has a really high protein level, so with that much protein it pushes the starch out so you don't have as much starch. Right. The starch is kind of what we want. The food for what you need Yeah, to but that. with the growing conditions up here, it generally is always gonna be high protein. Um, but that's, and brewers have some other drawbacks. They'll get chill haze and protein haze and stuff with too much of that in there. We don't worry about that, but mostly the yield is our thing. It takes me about twice as much Alaska barley than what it would take if I imported it from down south from down south right but the barley is the cheapest part of the whole process anyways and I'd rather support the farmers and just use twice as much of it right exactly
0: well and and like you said having it local gives back to the community and it's that whole circle of life thing all the the way around yeah exactly but yeah
1: we just started working with the farm in the Nana and uh they're growing some really nice barley. It's really plump. I haven't actually got a chance to try it yet. I just received a ton of it. Oh, just looking at it and seeing it, you can yeah. see that it looks a lot different. Yeah, and, uh, so I can't wait to try that out and see how it goes. See, so maybe
0: it won't be two. Maybe it'll be one and a half times. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But, you don't know, yeah. know. Being Alaskan, Rob can't help but try to bring a uniqueness to the spirits he distills. And nothing is more unique than Ursa Major's aged rum. Now, first, you have to understand, rum is made from sugar cane, which doesn't grow in Alaska, but even getting his own sugar, Rob had to figure out how to age his rum while being able to sell the stock on hand and not have to wait more than a year for each batch. And then on top of that, he decided to give the rum that Alaskan spin with a very special ingredient.
1: Yeah, yeah, that's a fairly unique rum. Um, So we use kind of a turbinado style sugar, brown sugar that has a little bit of molasses in there. To call it rum it has to be 100 percent sugar cane or right. sugar cane product of some sort um, so yeah we bring in the sugar to make it alaskan and unique we actually use a sourdough instead of a yeast when we ferment it really so it's a 60 year old sourdough started in lake clark it's kind of a famous alaskan sourdough one of the fair yeah yeah and, um, but yeah so i kind of had that idea too i was sick of buying nice yeast to make rum with and i was like well you know and to have rum, you want the bacteria component in there to kind of right. it gives it the esters and the, the rum funkiness. Kind right. Of so, yeah, I was like, well, why don't I just mix up a big batch of sourdough and dump it in there and see what happens. So, yeah, yeah. I grew about a five-gallon bucket full of sourdough and dumped it into the batch. And, wow. Uh, it tasted, yeah, it turned out tasting amazing. You can actually taste the sourdough kind of in there. Get and that, that different flavor. It gives it the funkiness and the sweetness of the esters.
0: Okay, no sugar, got it handled. Alaskan sourdough is the yeast? Check on the uniqueness box. But what about the aging? Again, the challenge is to have something to sell while you're waiting for your stock to age. And that's something Rob had an answer for as well.
1: Well, the rum, we, we aged that, it's a process called Solera aging, um, what we've been doing. So our first batch of rum, um, we, we used small barrels, we put it in there, we aged it for a year. So it was more of a traditional aging kind of thing. Right. And then we bottled it from there. Um, The Solera aging is a little different. You more rotate it through the casks. So I've got a couple casks back there. What we do is we fill it with rum, and we let it sit for a good couple months. And then when I needed rum, I just pulled some off and bottled it, and then I put new make rum back in the top. And you can kind of cycle it. You can get several barrels and do that same thing. You'll top one off with the other. So it all is just kind of be, being stored in a right. Because, it's always it's aging. You go to the oldest yeah. barrel first, and you're always aging it, no matter yeah. what. But still able to access. Yeah, you're just kind of jumping it over all the time. And we've had great results with it so far with the aged rums. Well, that's so. amazing. That's gonna be that's gonna be good stuff. Yeah, and when a barrel starts wearing out, you can always add another one, so you get the more extractives in there. Right, yeah. add one more to the to yeah. the rotation. And, and to me, it's better than having white rum just sitting in bottles because when I make rum, I make a bunch of it, so I had the problem of, boy, I'd have, you know, 15, 20 cases just sitting there, just in the bottle. Right, you know? can't like, do it. Well, why don't I put them on oak and they can be aging while it's While it's sitting, sitting there, around. just do it, yeah. and then you can bottle it fairly quickly yeah, and get yeah. it out.
0: But rum isn't the only spirit that Rob has decided to put his stamp on. One of my favorite spirits is gin, which begins as a neutral distilled spirit that is then flavored and redistilled with juniper berries and other botanicals. Well, Rob decided that his gin needed a bit more Alaska in the bottle, so he decided to use rhubarb as one of his additional flavors. It tastes delicious, but it did create some problems for him when he tried to ramp up production,
1: and how much rhubarb do you guys go through when you're making? Boy, uh, oh, right nowadays that? quite a bit. Yeah, when I was first doing it, I, I basically used to make gin on a lab still, like a little, you know, a thousand milliliter still, is how I'd make the gin. So I right. add all this, and it ended up being about two sticks of rhubarb in that little tiny batch. Um, so
0: that gives you an idea of scaling it up. Yeah, so gotta, yeah. So yeah. I had to build
1: a bigger still just to make gin on, and it's a 15 gallon still is what I do it now, and it's a good 20 pounds of. Rhubarb Barb to do a batch now. So I make gin probably once every month or two. I'll do a big batch like that. Yeah. And at first, like I could always find enough rhubarb. I'd laugh at people when they wanted to sell me rhubarb because there was always enough of it laying around. Now it's like, wow, can I buy some rhubarb? Because how I'm, many plants <laughs> do you have in your yard? Right. You know, know. <laughs> yeah.
0: here's Rob. He's out behind a building. Somebody thinks he's doing a drug deal. No, it's, it's rhubarb. Really. Deal. That's right, right here. Yeah. I need yeah. twelve
1: bags of that. Bring it over. Yeah, and kind of the community aspect of it is great. Like I'll come in sometimes in the morning and there'll be a box of rhubarb sitting on the doorstep. But right, that just people just, some just community drop. member. will just like drop it off.
0: As I said, gin begins as a neutral distilled spirit, which is the same base used for the rum and also for Rob's flagship, his vodka. So since it's the main ingredient of everything he does, I asked Rob to walk me through the distilling process from start to finish. Surprisingly, that actually starts out with barley and making his own version of beer. We
1: kind of start right here with the the barley. Um, So that's our Delta barley. It's raw barley right off of the farm. Um, we don't malt it or anything like that. Like I said, the uh, Alaska barley has a lot of protein to it and not a whole lot of starch. Um, and also, it doesn't malt very well either. So malting is just a process of sprouting the barley and making those enzymes kind of kick off to where you can convert that starch to sugar. Right. Um, but Alaska barley doesn't seem to do that very well. Uh, the germination rates are a little, little rough to do that. Um, so we actually use a malted barley enzyme. So it's basically just ground up malted barley that we add to it in the process to, to help with that. Um, so the first process, the first step to this is taking the starch that's in here. We convert that to sugar and then we're going to turn that into alcohol and then we're going to we're going to concentrate it in the stills.
0: Well, I can't wait to get to the next step and see how everything works on producing vodka, rum and gin. It's a process that's centuries old, but still one of the coolest things I've seen so far on Finer Things. When we return in just a moment, I'll continue with Rob Borland from Ursa Major Distilling, and we'll continue on to the next step in the distilling process the mash. It's all part of our behind the scenes look at making spirits in the last frontier, right here on Finer Things. There's not no doubt so much the spirit comes as rum and true religion. Lord Byron. Welcome back to Finer Things. Today we're talking about craft distilling in the last frontier with Rob Borland, the owner, founder, and distiller at Ursa Major Distilling in Esther, Alaska, right outside of Fairbanks. Right before we went to break, Rob had started us through the first processes of actually distilling his base spirit, which started with getting the barley together and setting it up for the next step, the mashing.
1: So the first step is the mill. And this mill's come a long way for me. So we crush it a little bit first. So that's that's what it looks like when it's crushed. We still want the nice whole husks to it, but we want that starch to be broken up and more available to be turned into sugar, basically. Right. Um, and like I said, this mill was a, a process for me. Like it... It started with this little tiny mill that I ran on, like a 1960s drill motor, you know, that would grind this stuff up. And it was really loud and obnoxious, and I burned up several drill motors before, you know, just the volume that we go through. Like, we'll do, we'll do 600 pounds a week of barley through this mill pretty right. easily. Um, so I finally upgraded. It's still kind of a scab together thing. So we mill the barley right there. We do 150 pounds, so three, these are 50 pound bags. We take three of these bags, um, we grind it up in the mill, and then we're, we're ready to cook kind of at that point. And I say cook, kind of I use that term loosely. <laughs> so a lot of brewers, a lot of other distillers, they've got steam capabilities and they actually can cook things better. They can hold temperatures at certain places and stuff. We're a little more archaic. Um, so from here, we take this 100, 150 pounds of ground barley, it goes in this kettle over here and like i say it's kind of a loose term cooking it's more of a scottish style um, scalding the grain so traditional scotch it would just be more of scalding the grain so we put the grain in here we hit it with 210 degree water and it that's kind of where we go from there so the heat along with the water it's a lot like making oatmeal so when you add hot water to oats you know how it gets really thick you know and kind of opens up that's what we want that's the first kind of step to the, the starch molecules kind of explode it gelatinizes in there and that's that's what right. we want makes it more available pulls for, the bonds apart and then they start add.
0: adhering to each other instead of yeah
1: right. yep and at that point the enzymes that are in the barley start taking effect and they start cutting that starch molecule down into sugar so starch is just a really It's a really complex sugar molecule. It's a whole bunch of sugars mashed together into one thing. So these enzymes that are in the barley, they start cutting that apart into simpler and simpler sugars all the time. And that's where malting comes into effect. If you malt it, you've got a lot more of those enzymes, so it helps you out a lot more. Where we don't malt it, that's where we have to add a little bit of powdered malt to it because those enzymes that we're adding help break that down. Right. Um, So when we first start this thing, it's a... like this is kind of the most important tool here is my canoe paddle it gets so thick you can't even stir it in here right um, when we first mash it in and then we start adding that malt to it and it thins up considerably fairly quickly to it starts cutting all those starch bonds and making simple basically sugars.
0: deglues the glue so to speak yeah right.
1: yeah so it kind of it liquefies it more than anything and Pretty much by the end of the it's an all day process to do a, a batch, you know, because we put it in at 210 degrees and it cools throughout the day and the cooling makes those enzymes do certain things at certain temperatures and things and it ends up being kind of a really thin kind of barley soup by the time we're done. Right. And we've got an instrument where we check the sugar content so we know when it's done we know when all the starch is converted and stuff. Um, And the best way is just to taste it. (laughs) It tastes tastes sweet when it's... Likely
0: story, likely story. I just had to taste it. It's for science. Yeah,
1: exactly. So once it's nice and sweet um, and cool enough for the yeast, we pitch the yeast into there. And we mix the yeast up in it, and then we pump it to the fermenters for the ferment.
0: Now that the oatmeal-like slurry of the mash is completed, we take it to the next step of Fermentation. This part of the process was probably first discovered, likely by accident, more than 2,000 years ago. It's the part where nature takes her course, in this case, with a little help from Rob, and starts breaking down the starches and sugars utilizing the air's natural bacteria. Those bacteria, in the process of eating the sugars from the starch, excrete alcohol, creating the wash, which is the raw ingredients of distillation in liquid form.
1: So over here along the wall are our fermenters, the, the blue totes with uh, white lids to them. Um, we pump them to there and then it takes off for the ferment. Um, it's about a four day ferment to do that. Um, it takes basically that barley soup and it turns it into a really crude beer. Um, this is the one we just did yesterday. It's probably still rolling pretty good. Get off of that one. But all those grain solids get kind of pushed to the top right there. Um, and you can smell it. It smells like, you know, kind of apples and a little breadiness in there.
0: Smell-o-vision. Yeah,
1: exactly. Can't really smell it over radio very well. Um, but. Basically, what we end up with is a 6% alcohol beer that has a lot of the chunks in it still because right. all that grain is still in there. And that's what gives us a lot of the flavor is it gives us better yields and stuff as we go. So from here, we take this stuff and we pump it to these strainers. And what these strainers do, it separates the solids from the liquids. So we pump it, the whole mass into here, and it's just barrels with holes drilled in them. So that spent grain stays in the barrels. The beer comes to the outside of this tote. And that's what goes on to the still. Just a giant sieve, basically. Yeah, right. yeah pretty much. Just a big strainer. Um, but what we end up on the liquid side here is uh, about a 6% beer that comes right. out of here. Um, and that goes to the first still. And I believe we talked about that a little earlier. We run two different stills. Um, one of them is a basic pot still. That's this bigger one here.
0: Um, And this is your own design?
1: It is, yeah. Well, it's a basic pot still. It's my own cobbling it together. Right. So, yeah, Yeah, I by no means came up with a pot still, but it's, uh, yeah, cobbled together by me. Right. Um, So it's electric heated, so we take that beer and put it in here. And the process at this point is it's really nothing more than boiling beer. We're just boiling beer down here in the kettle. Right. Um, As the vapor comes off of that boiling beer, it runs up through this column. And then this big blue thing is a condenser. So it takes that vapor and turns it back into a liquid and then it falls out down here. Um, So what falls out of there is what we call low wines. Um, And that's just a really crude distillate for the most part. And I'll take the lid off. You can't smell it over the radio or whatever, but it's just a really crude kind of whiskey. You'll smell it wafting to you in a minute. yeah, you are not even. Oh, man. Yeah, <laughs> You'll get that for sure. Yeah, it kind of has that really apple kind of sweet flavor to it. actually it smells pretty darn good, quite yeah. honestly. Yeah, I mean. it's nothing you'd want to drink normally, but it's, uh, yeah. Well, I don't know. I drink some. I'm blind. I'm yeah. blind. <laughs> Yeah, it probably wouldn't make you blind at this stage. Luckily, definitely
0: give you a headache. though. Yeah, probably. I mean, and that's you talked a little bit about that. Yeah. Some of those high alcohols—they're yeah. the ones. They're—I mean, all alcohol is toxic. Yeah, basically, exactly. we yep. you know to one degree or another. Uh-huh. Those high alcohols are the ones though that are very—you can't process them very well. Yeah,
1: yep. yeah, they. Yeah, it's basically acetone and methanol. And man, that it, smells it really good. I, mean, I could still yes, smell it. it was, sweet, yeah, that
0: smells delicious. Right. I want some yep. right now. Nope, I didn't get to taste any of the low wine. Maybe one day. If you ever get a chance to try any, make sure that you do so in moderation, because that'll give you a hangover that you'll never forget. Now that we have the wash ready, it's time to get to the actual distilling. That's right, folks. It's time to science. When we return with Rob Borland from Ursa Major Distilling, he'll run us through the process of running the wash through his two different stills and show us exactly how he gets some of his finest blends like vodka, rum, and gin from a crude low-wine beer. That's up next with Finer Things. A medium vodka-dry martini with a slice of lemon peel, shaken and
1: not stirred.
0: Ian Fleming. Welcome back to Finer Things. I'm Michael Dukes, and today we're talking about craft distilling in the last frontier with Rob Borland from Ursa Major Distilling, based right in the Golden Heart of Alaska's interior. Rob has been walking us through the actual distilling process, starting off with grinding and preparing the barley, making that barley into an oatmeal-like substance called mash, and then allowing nature to take her course and ferment that mash down to the wash, which is the liquid base ingredient that then goes into a still. But which one? Rob has two types of stills, a basic pot still and a column or spirit still, each of which has their own separate function.
1: So kind of the point of this still is to make this, and it's the precursor to where we we go from there. So the key is to raise the alcohol content as much as we can before it goes into the spirit still. Right. So it goes in as, like I said, 6%, and it comes out at about 30% or 60 proof is what comes out of there. So we've concentrated it enough to where we can do something with it.
0: Right, so now you take it the 30 proof that's in this stainless steel barrel right here. And then we pop it over, and now it gets pumped into the secondary still.
1: Yeah, we put it into this one, which is a spirit still. And this one, it's a similar principle, but it's a little more, a little neater design. It's more like an oil refinery tower kind of thing. Which is where you
0: came from to begin with, right? Yeah, yeah,
1: so it's called fractional distillation at this point. So it makes it really easy to make those cuts. Um, so we pump the low winds into here and it's the same process we're just boiling the low wines here The vapor is still coming up the column It's still condensing up top and then falling out. The only difference is the way we run it So these columns are packed with a it's a copper mesh So it's kind of like a copper scrubber material. Right. So all the way up this columns These are packed in there all the way and what that does is it gives you surface area so as that vapor starts running up through the column, every time it hits a piece of this packing, it condenses and falls back out. So in, in effect, it's being redistilled all the way up that Multiple column. Multiple
0: runs, essentially, within one, one single run. run yeah. Right, yeah, so
1: it, it re a whole bunch of times on the way up the column. And then when it finally gets to the top of the column, uh, those condensers up top, those big copper coils, right. those turn it all into liquid, and it falls back down into the system anyways. So... What we have is kind of an equilibrium. When we first run this thing, we shut the valves. We don't let any product come out. So we're boiling down here, we're condensing up here, and all this redistillation's going on in the middle. And it's just this equilibrium. So if you do that long enough, everything lines out by its boiling point in the column all the chemical constituents right so the lighter stuff is going to be concentrated at the top of the column your methanol your acetones ethyl acetate the nasty stuff is going to be at the top your heart's cut which is the good stuff it's going to be in the middle and then the tails are going to be towards the bottom so if we once we start taking it off the system we'll let it We'll let it equilibrate for a good two hours before we even take anything off of it. We'll be boiling it. It'll just be doing its thing for about two hours. Then we'll open up the valves, and we'll take it off at a really slow, controlled rate. Um, And what that does is if we take it off slow enough, it doesn't screw up that equilibrium. It'll just peel that nasty stuff off the top, and everything else will slowly move up the column kind of thing.
0: And so you know, and you can tell by the different... Uh, you know the chemical composition of the alcohols and stuff like yeah. okay this is all the bad this is all the highs yeah and then you could see it when it changes or or you, what what's your yeah. indicator when it changes uh, the head the temperature
1: at the top because it's all by boiling point so those little thermometers that are up top tell us kind of what's what's at that point of the column um so once that temperature starts to spike it starts out fairly low and it spikes up a little bit we know we're kind of the heads are worked their way off of it kind right. of thing and we're into the good stuff but you still always kind of have to taste. Um, the instruments are only so good and your, your taste buds are a lot better than right. than that. So we'll taste until those heads are definitely gone. Um, and then we, we go from there. After that, we're in the heart's phase and we just, we just run it and it goes for days. This thing I run for about three days cause it comes off so slow. Um, it's just a couple drips a second of that 190. Pr- right. Come off of here. Um, so I just kind of let it drip for a couple days. And then once that temperature starts to spike again, it means we're into the tails and the tails are starting to come through. So again, we'll start tasting it, tasting it. And
0: you've never changed the temperature itself. It's actually within the process that exactly it's, right? Yeah,
1: It's all whatever the alcohol content is here is the only thing that's really changing right. and the amount of product that you're taking off of there. Right. Um, so that's what kind of gives us that mouth feel. We let a little bit of the tails through that gives you some actual flavor in there. Well, once it starts tasting too bitter, then we're, we're done. We shut it off. Kind right, of and blend it out.
0: So now we have our spirit, the neutral spirit that Rob then breaks down and uses in his vodka, gin, and rum. But how do you make all three out of a single spirit? And what about the bottling process itself?
1: From here, we have 190 proof alcohol. Right. Um, and that's what we make the gin and the vodka out of. Vodka is fairly simple Um, from there. We dilute that 190 proof down to 90 proof. And then we run it through a carbon filter, which is this kind of apparatus over here. We run it through the carbon to take any rough edges off of it and kind of make it a little more consistent, smooth it out a little bit, I guess. And uh, from there, once it's done filtering, we dilute that to 80 proof and that's bottle strength. We put it in the bottle. Um, So bottling is kind of an ordeal as well. We have a single bottle filler. Uh, It actually goes pretty quick, but we bottle everything by hand, put all the labels on by hand. Yeah, that's a little magic bottle machine over there. Um, Yeah, it just fills kind of one bottle at a time. We run it through a particular filter so no chunks or anything end up in there. yeah, pretty much go for there. That's the story of the vodka.
0: This is the story of the, you know, again, the kind of the small distillery getting, you know, getting things rolling, not having an automated filler, not having anything else. Yeah. Essentially, yeah. everything being done right here by hand.
1: Yep. Yeah. yeah. So if you ever get a bottle with the label on a little cricket, it just means we had a whole lot of them to do that day. Right. <laughs>
0: or you've been sampling a little too much of the yeah, product, one totally of the really two.
1: <laughs> but yeah, so that's the vodka. The gin. We use that same stock. So we'll basically make that vodka like we did. We dilute it to 90, we'll filter it, and then we'll dilute it to 80, which would be bottle strength. Um, but then that's where we add one extra step to it. So with the gin, that's when we'll add the botanicals to it. So our uh, juniper, iris root, mace, cardamom, coriander, and rhubarb go into there. And then I've got a smaller pot still in the back that's a little propane-fired deal, and... We'll distill that whole mess over again. How long
0: do you let it steep? How long do you let it... Not you know? very
1: long. Yeah, the, it's, a, it's about all day just to distill it. So it's in right. there for about a day just boiling.
0: Cooking it, while it's it. going away. So yeah. no no reason to let it sit prior to that. Yeah, right? a lot of
1: people do. They'll let it sit overnight or whatever. But I've, I've never really found a use for it. I just I just throw it in and distill it kind of thing. So all those oils carry over and it makes that gin extract that we were talking about before um that's just just the gin extract a really strong gin i know you viewers at home can't uh, smell it but
0: (laughs) oh yeah wow you can really get the it's got a lot of juniper on it yeah if you were
1: to taste that you wouldn't taste anything but juniper for about three days so yeah (laughs) we we blend that down with more of that same stock uh, that we do the 190 with um and that's how we do the gin same thing we uh bottle it all by hand and all that kind of stuff Good Stuff,
0: so vodka and gin and then the rum you take off and again use your solaris method to uh yeah. basically rotate and age that and that's all done but yep. pretty
1: much all the magic happens right here in this room it does yeah yeah pretty much this whole room and that's
0: the whole process in a nutshell simple right well not really but man is it worth it Rob's vodka is clean and flavorless with just a hint of salt at the very end. His rum is amazing, with that unique sourdough used as the fermenting agent coming through on the nose and broadly across the palate. And his gin, that rhubarb gives you an amazing flavor that lingers on the tongue and would make for a very excellent martini. Unfortunately, the only place you can find Ursa Major Spirits right now is in his tasting room in Esther. But with Rob's excellent skills and unique take on things, I'm sure that'll change in the future. So next time you're in Fairbanks, make sure to stop on by. View his absolutely beautiful tasting room and take home some finer things to try for yourself. I want to thank Rob for being such a gracious host and giving us a big chunk of his day in teaching about his distilling process. Oh, and on a side note, Rob is in no way responsible for some of the questionable audio quality of our interview today. That's all on me, and I promise we'll get better as we go forward. So that about wraps it up for today's show. Just a reminder, you can always let me know what you think of as finer things. Tell me of that favorite little restaurant, that tiny little B&B or boutique hotel that you just can't wait to get back to. Tell me the story of your favorite brew and of the guys and gals that have poured their blood, sweat, and tears into making it happen. Maybe I'll go out and meet these folks and bring back adventures inspired by you and your very own finer things. So go on, fire up that email browser and drop me a line. Tell me what your thoughts are both on the show and of some of the things that you'd like to see us talk about in the future. Just send it to Michael at FinerThingsRadio.com. That's M-I-C-H-A-E-L at FinerThingsRadio.com. While you're there, make sure to follow the link to our Facebook page or just put "finer things" in the search bar at the top of the page. And finally, if you'd like to see all the great food, drinks, and more, plus behind-the-scenes stuff about what we'll talk about on upcoming shows, follow our Instagram account, at TV. I'm Michael Dukes, and I hope you'll come back next week and all that follow as we get together, grab a glass or plate of our favorite something, and have that conversation about The Finer Things. Finer Things is a production of the Creative Department Incorporated, all rights reserved. Find out more at FinerThingsRadio.com.